remember uh, Ridainanda Swami's answer to your question. <laughs> yes, I remember that too, very clearly. <laughs> <laughs> and I think he's the only one who clearly answered that question for me. <laughs> what was the question? The question was, um, I think it was something about the Christians, why they are so much against Hare Krishnas or something. And you said, they're suddenly seeing some opposition which they never did before. Huh. That was your answer, I think. Actually, I'm going to say more on that topic. Not, I mean, not exactly is their attitude toward us, but in general, uh, yeah, we're going to revisit that a little bit. Okay, that would be nice. Thank you. Anyway, Maharaj, I have a lot of respect for Maharaj because one of the senior devotees I've known for many, many years. He came to Boston when I was a relatively new devotee, probably 72 maybe you came to, this is when you were sannyasi, came to Boston. Yeah, the good old days when I was a sannyasi. <laughs> <laughs> I meant that you were already a sannyasi when you came there. <laughs> I, ling, English is my second language. <laughs> no, it was, it was, you already had taken sannyasa and you were traveling around. And uh, why well, I remember answering, I remember questions from then that you answered. And I remember one person was saying, you know, why is it everybody, you know, here, you, you, you're always collecting money for, you know, trying to get money. You said, and you said, well, they're giving out literatures, you know, and they were giving out back to God in magazines, you know, and they asked for a quarter and, and, and persons. And you said, any gentleman has a quarter. And he said, well, I'm not a gentleman. And, and you said, well, better late than never. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry I'm getting into all this, uh, but I remember these things very, very clearly. <laughs> And anyway, one of my favorites in Yasi, I, I think one of the main, very nice thing about you is you have a really good sense of humor and I really appreciate that a lot. You know Sanskrit, you graduated from Harvard or PhD in Sanskrit uh, in religious studies. And uh, you, you know, you're very qualified. I like when you give classes and you, you have the verse and you, di you, you, you dissect. dissect the verse, the Sanskrit. And it's so nice. You make everything very interesting. So I'm very happy that you're here to give us a, 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 a talk, a lecture on something to do with Krishna consciousness. I'm not sure what, it's, what it is. Yeah, it's going to be vaguely related to Krishna consciousness. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. I don't want to take any more time. Thank you so much, Maharaj, for, for doing this. Thank you, Piari, for the very kind uh, welcome. And Piari is, of course, an old friend of mine. And uh, yeah, for, for many, many years. And I'm happy to <clears throat> be able to spend some time with all of you. So uh, because we live in a time, <coughs> excuse me, that, that's not a Smoker's hack, by the way. <laughs> I gotta, I'm gonna mute myself because you're gonna hear. <laughs> Maharaj, you gave a class in Massachusetts at, at, at a oh, it it was in Western Mass, not at the temple, 
And I, and I thought it was great. I listened to it later on and all I hear is me laughing. <laughs> and it's like, I'm the only one laughing. <laughs> well, you're the smartest one in the crowd because you got <laughs> Anyway, I'm gonna mute this so you don't hear me laughing anymore. <laughs> okay. Um, so thank you again very much and uh, happy to spend time with all of you. Um, as we know, we're living in very uh, conflicted times. There's a lot of social, political division in the country, even moral division. And uh, Krishna ac actually explains why that's the case. Krishna explains why the societies or communities uh, become sort of trapped in all this conflict. And uh, so the verses I will focus on are Bhagavad Gita chapter 18, uh, verses 20, especially verses 20 through 21, where Krishna is describing jnanam, knowledge. But in this context, it means something like what we would call nowadays worldview how you see the world. And, and then in, in verses 18, uh, 30 through 32, Krishna talks about buddhi or intelligence in the modes. So if you compare buddhi and jnana, uh, intelligence and knowledge, the way Krishna is using these terms in the, in the 18th chapter, it's something like what would be called in Western philosophy, uh, synthetic knowledge and analytic knowledge. Synthetic doesn't mean knowledge made out of nylon. Uh, it means like in the sense of, a, a, although that's, we have to leave open that option, but, but synthetic in the sense of a synthesis, like the synthesis. And by the way, S-Y-N in Sanskrit, uh, I mean, in English, synthetic, uh, synthetic or synthesis or symbiotic, of course, comes from Sanskrit. That's just the Sanskrit S-A-M, sum, like Sankirtan which means together kirtan. Sung in Sanskrit means together. And so from the Sanskrit sung, we have Greek sin, which they pronounce soon in ancient Sanskrit. So that's where we get words like synthesis. So the synthesis is the together thesis, when you bring everything together and see the big picture, or what we would call worldview. And then buddhi, as Krishna uses it, is analytic in the sense you break things down into their parts, like what is to be done, what's not to be done, and uh, what is good and bad. So it's analyzing the breaking things down into their different components. So we're going to look at how Krishna talks about jnana, knowledge, uh, in the different modes. And, and I think this explanation will make it obvious why what the trouble is nowadays. So uh, in the mode of goodness, 1820 in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, Sarva Bhuteshu Jainaikam Bhavam Abhyayam Ikshate. So, uh, Avivhaktam Vivhakteshu Tadgyanam Vidhisatvikam. So, Krishna is saying that knowledge or that worldview which sees Sarva Bhuteshu in all beings, literally, it is the knowledge by which. Actually, yena means it is the knowledge or the worldview by which one sees in all beings 
ekam bhavam, one reality or one state of being in the highest sense. I mean, obviously, for example, if like right here, we can see each other. We can, if you're in a room, you can see perhaps a table, a chair, the different parts of, well, but here Krishna, of course, is talking about um, different people. So we're talking about different people. So right here, there are different people, but within all of us, this is what Krishna is saying, within all of us, there is an abhyayam bhavam, ekam. There is one eternal, unperishing, abhyayam uh, reality, or one state of being, literally, bhavam, like one state of being, which, of course, is spiritual, is the soul. Krishna does not mean that we are all the same person or we are all the same spiritual blob or something. But what he's saying is that even though we are different persons, somehow the same spiritual essence that's within me, that within me, namely that I'm an eternal soul, is also within you. Essentially, we are all the same kind of thing. We are all eternal souls. And Krishna says, avibhaktam vibhakteshu, and that one spiritual reality that, that is in all of us is undivided in the divided, undivided among the divided things. So clearly we are uh, vivakta in the sense of um, we are divided. We are different people. We are different individual souls. So vivakteshu, so among the divided, that's us. And yet within the, within the divided, there is an undivided spiritual essence. And in that sense, we are all one, even as we are all individual. So, avivaktam vivakteshu, so Krishna says, tad jnanam vidhi, know that this worldview is in the mode of goodness. And then in contrast, we go down uh, both numerically and qualitatively, going down to the mode of passion, where Krishna says, And know that worldview to be passionate, not virtuous, not in goodness, but in passion, when... Uh, one sees in all beings, one sees in all beings, uh, many different states of being in the, in the mode of passion because consciousness is becoming clouded. Hare Krishna, I think we have a runaway microphone there. Okay. All set? Okay. Some of the microphones, as we know, are living entities, and so sometimes they 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 act out. So Krishna says, Pritagtwena too. So that so in the mode of goodness, someone obviously sees the variety of the world. There are different people in the world, there are different species, different genders, races, nationalities, ethnicities. And obviously, in the mode of goodness, you see that. However, within all those varieties, you see there is one unperishing 
spiritual nature that unites us all. Now, in the mode of passion, a person, because their consciousness is becoming covered, is becoming opaque, they cannot see past the surface. They only see the surface. And on the surface, we are different. Different races, genders, ethnicities, uh, you know, different favorite baseball teams even, which is, you have to be very advanced to see past that, right? But anyway, so, so in the mode of goodness, you see all the differences, but you see beyond it. But in the mode of passion, you can't get beyond the surface. So if someone's a man and someone's a woman, they're just different. End of story. If they belong to different races, different cultures, different ethnicities, they are just different. And there is nothing beneath the surface that brings all these people together in complete spiritual unity. We also call this the bodily concept of life. You cannot see beyond the body. You cannot see beyond the surface. So in the mode of passion, rather than seeing ekambhavam, one ultimate nature, one sees nanabhavan, one sees many different states of being, many different natures, pritagvidhan, and they are of separate kinds. In other words, you can't bring them like all the campfire kumbaya singing in the world is not going to bring all these things together because they're just, they're just different. So men and women are just different. They'll never get along because they're just different or people of different races, ethnicities, different species, that there's no significant uh, connection between let's say an animal and a human being. So I, I cannot kill humans, but I can kill animals because they have nothing to do with me. There's a complete breakdown of empathy at this point. And so um, that's in the mode of passion, na na bhavan pritag vidhan. For example, this word pritag, pritag means separate. And, and there are several verses in the Bhagavatam where you get where you get the term pritag drishti. Drishti is like darshan, seeing. And so Prabhupada translates this separates his vision. And the Bhagavatam talks about a devotee that cannot see the unity of devotees and has a separatist vision, pritag drishti. So even someone that claims to be a devotee may fall victim to this uh, inaccurate, this inaccurate, uh, passionate vision of the world. When Krishna is describing uh, intelligence, bhuti, in the mode of passion, he says, ayatavit prajanati, which means literally, uh, intelligence in passion understands things inaccurately. Inaccurately. And the mode of ignorance is just a total write-off. I mean, they don't, they can hardly get out of bed in the morning. So, but in the mode of intelligence, ayatavit prajanati, people understand things inaccurately. Inaccurately. And so now getting to our modern chaotic world, of course, as we know, I don't want to get into specific politics because I don't want to, you know, sort of uh, criticize the mentally deficient. 
you know, the people who are running this country, but we want to have empathy for them and hope they can somehow be treated in the very near future. But so when you get people, when you get people who are very strongly in the mode of passion, they see the world divided up into different groups and they want to fight for their group and fight against the other groups, even if they're citizens of the same country. And so if we look at modern activities, we, we live in an age where the ethos, sort of like the spirit of the age, is basically collective narcissism. Collective narcissism. And you know, therefore we get the narcissist in chief. But and actually there there is a there is a connection. I'm just gonna close this door here because some cars are going by and uh Oh. I'm wearing these very stylish clothes, and by the way, it's all for sale. So, you know, get your bids in. And um, <laughs> anyway, just kidding. So, for example, sex, the so-called, you know, sexual liberation movement, and all kinds of activities that were formerly and correctly considered degraded, now if, uh, you know, if, if someone is completely out of control, acting in a very bestial way, polluting the whole public atmosphere, if you notice that, then of course you are body shaming someone. Because you're body shaming them. So, or the idea here is that uh, you know, the, uh, the United States of self-esteem. So there's this whole big push for self-esteem. It's like everyone, you know, we have to reach some less fortunate people that don't yet know they're perfect just the way they are. It's funny because, you know, you'd think that life is meant to improve yourself. In fact, that used to be a common way of speaking in the, in the early 1800s where people would say, yes, I want to improve myself, which could mean learning a musical instrument or becoming a better person. But nowadays, um, there's this idea that, that even if someone is really a fool, uh, you're perfect as you are. You know, there's nothing wrong with you, even though you're really pathetic, but actually there's nothing wrong with you. And so self-esteem, I mean, obviously we don't want to shame people or, although you see, there's always two extremes. Do we really think it's a virtue to be shameless? I mean, don't we wish that people like Hitler or Stalin, who according to the Russian archives killed around 40 million people. Some people think it's still, still think it's sexy to be a Marxist, even though they killed about 10 to 20 times more people than Hitler which is one of the wonders of our age. So, um, I mean, when people do evil things, if someone shoots, let's say, a, uh, a nonviolent citizen, a policeman kills a citizen, I mean, isn't that shameless? Don't we wish that person had a, a more developed sense of shame? Do we really think, is, is everyone really perfect as they are? 
Is it that no one should try to improve themselves? Isn't life meant to become a better person, to learn, to grow? And yet now in this, this kind of disgusting atmosphere we live in where, where you know, the, the worst thing can happen to somebody is not dismemberment or death or, you know, it's, it's that someone do or say anything which may negatively impact their self-esteem. And so, so rather than, let's say, feeling good about yourself because you're actually a good person, because you're making good choices, because you're helping other people, because you're growing spiritually, you're cultivating virtue, now you feel good about yourself just because you exist. The, the mere fact that you exist means that you're basically perfect the way you are, unless you do certain things in which you're very imperfect. But I mean, I mean, the world is just, it, it's just so insane. It's so crazy. So in that mood of you can't shame anybody so that people are free to become degraded, they're free to totally wallow in the bodily concept of life, no concept of a soul, no concept of a higher existence, no interest in why the world exists, how it exists, why we exist, what's the purpose of our life, what really is the soul. This is very, very, so this is very passionate. So you get all this sex and all and, and drugs and uh, people just like absorbed in the body. And even the political discourse is that we, we're actually not allowed to see people just as people. We have to see them as, you know, somehow members of a body group. So someone has to be seen as a member of a racial group or, or they can't just be seen as a person. And of course, this results in abuse. And then it results in, uh, and then the response to the abuse can be a greater insistence on the bodily concept of life. And uh, anyway, I won't go into all the details, but it's, it's all this, it's this overwhelming passion and ignorance. And so when people are passionate, when people are promiscuous, when people uh, cultivate pride rather than humility or moderation, when, when, when they cultivate uh, just self-indulgence rather than moderation, you, you get this, um, I mean, Prabhupada, when he came to America in the 1960s, Prabhupada said that, uh, you know, there's just a lot of passion and ignorance here. I don't know what he would say now. Things were almost puritanical back then compared to now. And so it's all this passion the result is that people cannot see beyond the body. People cannot see beyond the body. And therefore they see themselves as divided because, you know, some people are, you know, saying you're racist. And then they respond to that by sort of, you know, demonizing anyone that disagrees with them, anyone that, uh, you know, whether they're racist or not, that doesn't exactly repeat the dogma of a certain political group. And it's just, everyone breaks down into these war camps. Uh, and of course, this is all material passion because when one is in material passion, people literally lose the power to see the oneness of everyone. They lose the power to see that. And I would like to suggest that uh, there's a sense in which I don't want to say all this, but a, but a part of it, a, a, a pretty hefty chunk, 
to use vivid language. A pretty hefty chunk of this is coming from religious fanaticism. And I, I think it emanates from that, and I'll explain what I mean. Um, there are actually people in the West, sometimes, uh, especially Christians, are proud to say that, um, you know, there, there are just three monotheistic traditions, which are Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, which, of course, is quite ignorant because Vaishnavism is a very powerful and very ancient monotheistic tradition. And I have to say that with the Trinity doctrine, it's not clear to me or a lot of philosophers that Trinitarian Christianity is actually monotheistic. But anyway, we won't get into that now. But the point I want to make is, the point I want to make is that there are really two kinds of monotheism. One I call philosophical monotheism, which was characteristic of some philosoph uh, classical philosophical traditions in the Greco-Roman times, and certainly in India, especially the Vaisal traditions, what I call philosophical monotheism. And to clarify that, on the other side is what I call tribal monotheism. Tribal monotheism. Tribalism is a certain, and I'm going to connect this to the, the problems in the country nowadays, Tribal monotheism is used in, in a sense which is mainly derogatory, meaning characterized by a tendency to form groups or by strong group loyalty. In other words, anyone that's not in our group is basically just kind of nothing or not important. And we're all of our loyalty. What, what's lacking is a strong sense of the common good, the public good, that even people of different religions or different races are still, um, they're all citizens or they're all souls and so on. And so uh, there is a unity beyond the differences. And that's exactly what Krishna describes as jnanam in the mode of goodness, knowledge and mode of goodness, where you see beyond the differences. But interestingly, tribal monotheism, where it's kind of like, you know, my God can beat up your God, or I have, I have the true religion and you have the false religion. I worship the living God. You worship a dead deity or something like that. You can see some of this stuff on Sunday morning for your own amusement, but so it's, it's, it's this fanatical approach. Now, what's interesting is that philosophical monotheism is based on philosophy. And the nature of philosophy is that you deal with universal categories. Like for example, if you talk about, uh, let's say the divinely empowered messenger of God, that's a philosophical or a theological category. And you could put Jesus there. You could even put Buddha there if you know Buddhism well enough. Certainly, you would put uh, Judaism there, the, the, the Hebrew prophets, or Islam, and, and Vaishnavism. For example, we talk about Shakti Avesh avatars. Avatars, people who literally descend to this world, and they are invested with uh, the power of God. And uh, there's an old Greek word which indicates that of receiving the power of God 
And the Greek word, of course, is charisma, spelled with a K. So a charismatic leader in the sociological or Greco-Roman sense means a leader perceived by the followers to, uh, to sort of incarnate or possess special empowerment from God. And so if you talk philosophically about a charismatic leader or a Shakti Avesh avatar, then it's a category in which many things can fit legitimately. And so you can talk about religion, you can talk about representatives of God or even talk about God in a philosophical sense, which allows you to bring together different traditions. They're not all, they're not all the same. They may not all have the same level of understanding, but you can talk about them all as fitting within certain basic philosophical categories. On the other hand, tribal monotheism is not based on philosophy. It's, I mean, the psychology is tribal and generally the main theological claims come not from philosophy, but from unique historical events. Just like, for example, if you say that uh, Jesus is, you know, I don't know, God, son of God, whatever church you belong to, but if you say, you know, that, that, you know, no one goes to the father except through Jesus. Interestingly, the only place the New Testament that claim is made is in the book of John, which even in ancient times, everyone knew was not historically accurate. But that's another discussion. So the idea here is that let's say someone believes in Jesus as the way to God or as God or whatever they think. So that's a unique historical event. Jesus was born, you know, depending on which gospel you read, either in Nazareth or perhaps in Bethlehem. Uh, it's interesting, you know, people say the Bible is infallible every word because all the four gospels give different versions of the same story. So if every word in the Bible is true, clearly we have parallel universes. But anyway, so if you believe that Jesus is the way to God, then Jesus appeared at a particular time, roughly the year zero, you know, give or take a few years. And, um, in a particular place. So it's all historically specific. It's at this time and not that time. It's at this place and not that place. And he has a name, Jesus, his name wasn't, you know, Fred or, or, or Muhammad. And so therefore, if your theology is based on a unique historical event, by definition, all other religions are excluded because they don't have that unique historical event. It's unique. Whereas philosophy can be universal. Many different groups can share the same basic philosophical ideas. They may differ on some points, but they'll agree on many other points. But if you have unique historical events that Muhammad appeared uh, in Mecca, or Jesus appeared in Nazareth, or this one or that one, then, uh, because these historical events are unique, you, you can't come together. So that's tribal monotheism, fanatical 
world, you know, dividing, if not destroying, you know, fanatical religion. And so, which unsurprisingly came out of a part of the world, which tends to be very tribal because of certain, you know, climatological and geographic situations, it's a part of the world which tend to be tribal. And so they impose this tribal psychology on uh, a religion. So like take for example, and, 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 and this is kind of like this crude lack of unifying principles. You see it not only, I mean, you see it elsewhere. For example, take the notion of creation ex nihilo. Ex nihilo in Latin means from nothing. Nihilo is like in the word annihilate, to aniho, anihilo, eight, like to annihilate. And so um, I explained this in, what language was that? Is it Portuguese or Spanish? Can't remember. Gave a class the other day. Anyway, I was explaining that um, if you believe that you were just created in this life. You don't have a previous life. There's no karma and so on. What that means is practically that ontologically, which means the nature of existence, your existence is radically different or fundamentally different from God's existence. Because as we know, God has always existed and always will exist, but you didn't always exist on this version. You just came into being right now. And therefore, uh, you're in a very fundamental way, you're not like God. And this separation from God, I just heard one religious leader on YouTube saying in a debate against an atheist saying, well, because some atheist wrote an idiotic book called God is Not Great. And so... He said, we agree, God is not great because great is like a human adjective and uh, we don't know what God is because God is beyond human understanding. So therefore, if you say God is great, you're bringing him down to the level of human understanding. I thought this was remarkably unintelligent. I have to say, because the real fact is that we are not bringing God down, we are being elevated. We are eternal souls, and in human life, if we play our cards right, sort of that you know great poker game of life, you know if if we if we have a bona fide process to approach God, we're not bringing God down to human terminology. We are being elevated to spiritual understanding because we're eternal souls. But in any case, this radical separation. If you look at these religions they tend to radically separate. In fact, even if you look at Christianity, you have, I mean, God, who the heck? I mean, what is God? Everything is about Jesus. And you just say, okay, that's nice, but let's just put that aside for now and let's talk about the nature of God. It's, I mean, who has a clue? God the Father, but that's about it. I mean, there's really no description of God. There's, It's not, if you think about it, it's just like God's almost like a placeholder. It's just a placeholder, you know, God the Father, but no one really knows who, who the heck that is. And, and what's the personality of God the Father in Christianity? I haven't got a clue. I've studied it for years, but I haven't got a clue. 
So, so in that way, even in Christianity, despite all the intimacy with God the Son, if you're a Trinitarian, despite all the intimacy with you know accepting Jesus in your heart, with God the Father, there's like a very, very wide gulf of separation. It's not at all clear who the heck God the Father is. If you wanted to file, I guess, a paternity suit, you wouldn't even know the address. So anyway, so, so there's this separation that we can't know God, no one has seen God. And, uh, and so it starts with separating God ontologically from souls, but then the divisions continue. It's, it's, it's this very passionate, it's this passionate theology that divides everything. I mean, even splits God into three, divides us from God, uh, and also divides humans from animals. You know, humans, like they're very proud, for example, that even if a child, if you know your child's going to have Down syndrome, you know, abortion is, 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 is sinful because, because every human life is like infinitely sacred and like, it, it's okay. So that if someone, let's say, is using their life just to get drugged and, you know, say rape or cheat or, or just stay in bed all day, somehow that life is infinitely valuable. It's, it's not clear why that's the case. I suppose if you think this is our only life, then, it, yeah, you could say maybe it's infinitely valuable if we have no other life. But if you look at the actual quality of many, I'm not advocating, you know, I don't know, genocide or anything. I'm just saying, though, that if you look at many human lives, it's, it's a real mystery where the great value is. But in any case, so despite that, human beings are radically separated from animals. Radically separated from animals. So, for example, Thomas Aquinas, the great theologian of the, of the Catholic Church, says that animals don't have souls, they're just machines. There's all kind. I mean, animals are machines. So you're, uh, you know, people love their pet dogs. Uh, you know, what's it like? Like, you know, Petunia, we've lost her, our little, you know, our little pet poodle. She's part of the family. We love her. If you, you know, she's missing, she's already missed three appointments with her psychiatrist. So, I mean, people really, and of course, animals do have souls, but, but Aquinas says, that animals don't have souls the way we do. Now, what's interesting is that that doctrine that radically separates humans and animals unwittingly provided a wonderful philosophical foundation for atheistic materialism. The basic claim of atheistic materialism is that you don't need a soul to get life and consciousness. That was Prabhupada's whole point, life comes from life that without a soul, you don't get life and you don't get consciousness. But the idea that without a soul, you can have life and consciousness comes from the architect of Catholic theology, Thomas Aquinas, who says that animals who are certainly alive and certainly conscious have no souls. So it's ironic that the great theologian of the world's largest religious tradition uh, laid the philosophical groundwork for atheism and, and materialism. In any case, this separation between religions, Paul, Paul um, you know, of Tarsus, 
bragged about the fact that he was violently thrown out of every town he ever walked into because he managed to offend everyone by his fanaticism. And uh, just, yeah, just trashing other religions. So it's like everywhere you see this passion that, you know, our religion is true, your religion is false. Our God is living, your, your God is dead. Human beings have souls, animals don't have souls. And, uh, and even separating human beings and God, you know, God is so far away and everything. And so it's all this passionate dividing things at every level, zoologically, ethically, you know, and theologically, just dividing everything up. And this is very typical of the mode of passion. And so you bring this passionate consciousness into, uh, let's say, political or social life, and there are favored races, and there are races unworthy of consideration. You know, I mean, I mean, the reason that some people don't kill everyone else of another religion today, one of the re the main reason is because they can't because it's illegal. So, so it's it's this radical separation and, and, and this psychology in which you are very comfortable with totally cutting huge portions of the population off from any moral consideration, from any connection with God, whether it's cutting off billions of animals or hundreds of millions of people that belong to a different religion. It's a certain psychology that's very comfortable with dividing the world up and just trashing the part that is in the wrong box. And so I don't, I, I don't mean to say here that certain religions are uniquely able to divide the world up like this. I mean, obviously people can be divided on the grounds of nationalism on the grounds of racism. But what I'm trying to say is that there is a very fertile, well-seeded, well-cultivated ground beneath us in America for fanaticism, for uh, radically excluding certain groups from moral consideration. I mean, all the neurological wiring is already there. You just have to plug in content. You know, so it can be racial content, it can be ethnic content, political content, and the structures are already there. And of course, then you get the equal and opposite reaction that's called the pendulum effect. Uh, one of my favorite all-time people, Galileo, no, just joking. But anyway, Galileo uh, is the one that he, he, he sort of coined the phrase pendulum effect where if you pull a pendulum, say 30 degrees this way, it'll go exactly 30 degrees the other side. This is also Newton's third law of motion. That um, Newton's third law of motion is that um, every action produces an equal and opposite reaction. And so you get this pendulum effect, you get this, which is basically the same thing, Newton's third law of motion. And then you get a philosopher, namely uh, Friedrich Hegel, philosopher Hegel, who takes this and he applies it to human history and says, this is how human history works. Human history, when he calls it the dialectic. Of course, Prabhupada did his spiritual dialectic, but 
So the dialectic is precisely that every action produces an equal and opposite reaction. So, I mean, Plato talks about this 2,400 years ago, long before Galileo. He says, for example, that anarchy leads to tyranny because one political extreme produces its opposite political extreme. So he says anarchy or democracy leads to tyranny. And so um, democracy is undoubtedly the best system because you think about everything that's been tried in human history, having sudras make the most important decision is definitely the best way. Anyway, a little facetious there, but... Um, so really... The solution here is Krishna consciousness or just the mode of goodness. Even just, but of course, it's hard to stay in the mode of goodness unless you really have a higher taste there. Because you may be like really, you know, Mr. Nice Guy or Mr. Nice Girl, and you're in the mode of goodness. But if you don't have a higher spiritual taste, you're definitely going to be get sucked into all kinds of passionate dualities. And so um the problem with political extremism, as we see on the left and right, is that it must, by the laws of nature, whether it's Newton or Galileo or Hegel, by the laws of nature, extremes must create an equal and opposite extreme. An equal and opposite extreme. And so if people go for political extremism, they are actually creating an opposite extremism, which will eventually manifest. And that's why these extremes are not sustainable. 20, 20 minutes left. Okay. Can I, I, well, I'll need at least 20 minutes to make my pitch for donations and, uh, you know, vote for me for guru most likely to succeed and all that. Okay. Maybe I'll save that for the end. So anyway, who's that young lady there? That's um, Amrita Kelly's place. Hare Krishna, is that your daughter? Yes, Maharaj, the younger daughter. She's laughing oh, with us at the jokes. If you laugh at my jokes, you will definitely go back to Godhead. <laughs> now the older one is laughing too, behind the screen. Oh. <laughs> so what, what is her name? What is your daughter's name? Uh, the younger one is Dhanne Gopi. Oh, and how old? I'm eight. Well, thank you for listening. I appreciate it. So, um, and that's why Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita that one who eats too much or too little, one who sleeps too much or too little cannot practice spiritual life because one extreme will generate by the laws of nature, both, you know, just the laws, either psychological nature or whatever it is, will produce its equal and opposite extreme. That's why political extremes lead to chaos. Because if you have one political extreme, it produces this equal opposite political extreme. The two clash and you get violence, you get conflict, you get chaos. And so it's really sort of to wrap this up, it is the um, duty of the Vaishnavas who have this higher knowledge to show people the middle path where you can peacefully, progressively, steadily work toward a better society and a better life for yourself. Because without the mode of goodness, if you think you can get people to see everyone equally, good luck. Good luck. It's not going to happen. Because even the people 
who are yelling for equality have radically divided the world into good and evil. And so their concept of equality is to radically condemn everyone that disagrees with them. And that's their program to unify the world. In other words, what they really mean is everyone who agrees with me is equal to everyone else that agrees with me. And anyone that doesn't agree with me is just, you know, is evil and is and and and, and that's their plan to unite the, the country. So the mode of passion does not unite, it can only divide. You know, if you're going to fight a just war, good. Maybe you need to be a little passionate, you know, don't you know, don't go to war just kind of like uh you know, burning incense sticks and chanting mantras. If you're, you know, so there are certain situations where you have to, you know, there's kshatriyas, but it's it's the Brahmins. We're supposed to be the Brahmin class. If America is a headless body, as Prabhupada said, the other bad news is that ISKCON is a disembodied head. You know, we are, because if, you know, the kshatriyas are the arms and the vaishas are the um, the midsection. Unless we somehow connect to society, uh, then we just remain this sort of free-floating head. Reminds me of this moody movie I saw in the 50s, Invaders from Mars. But anyway, won't go into that. It's funny because there was, you know, they used to have local TV stations back in the old days, very low budget. So I think it was Channel 9 or something when I was a kid one summer and summer, they really had low budgets. And so they played this movie, Invaders from Mars, and I guess they couldn't afford to buy any other movies. So like every afternoon, they would play it like three times every afternoon all summer. So I saw it at least 50 times. But anyway, so there was this head that had no arms or legs. But anyway, so if the head... If a body becomes decapitated, let's say the head gets cut off, which could ruin your whole day. But let's say the, but somehow or other the head is still conscious. Who's going to figure out how to reconnect the body and head? The body's not going to figure it out. The body's stupid. I mean, literally, it's it's completely. It doesn't. You know, it's un. It's the head. The head has to figure it out. So right now we have a we have a headless body and a disembodied head kind of sailing past each other. And so it's the duty of, of ISKCON to figure out how to reconnect. Because Krishna, all this passion, all this political passion and trashing private property, which is a good way to show equality, right? Equality means that even though you're innocent, I trash your property. And, you know, because I'm showing you what a more ethical society looks like. So all this passion is not going to change anything. All it's doing is just creating an opposite extreme. And it's making some people hate certain groups more than ever. And so the solution is Krishna consciousness, goodness, virtue, spiritual vision. So it's our duty to, um, it's our duty to, to enlighten this country and every other country. We have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of work to do. So maybe I'll stop here. And I want to leave plenty of time for you to make your impractically large donations. 
you know, don't consider any other duties like family or education or health. Just, you know, send it in. <laughs> Just, it's a joke. <laughs> so if you so if you have any questions now, uh, Ananda Leela, who is bravely manning the phone lines or the social media, do you have any questions? I have a Hi, One is how you're saying how you know, these extremes, this pendulum is extreme. I, I'm thinking, when you were saying that, I'm thinking how this movement is an extreme. We, we are totally different than, than what was here before. You know, we follow these certain rules and stuff. So now what's going to happen? Is there going to be some... Hey, we should, maybe we should re, what they rebrand ourselves as, you know, the, the spiritual invaders from Mars. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I'm not going to get sectarian here or obnoxious, but the whole point of Krishna West, I put the applause sign up, right? I should have like, you know, <laughs> laugh, applause, <laughs> prompters. I, I need to have prompters. So anyway, my, my point is that we are actually not weird. We weirdify ourselves, I think. In other words, like take our regular principles, which we always think that the world, you know, is shocked and horrified by. Really? First of all, being vegetarian, trendy, uh, being, if you look at what Prabhupada said about illicit sex, this is one of the well-kept secrets, you know, although Prabhupada said it many times. If you look at all Prabhupada's statements on illicit sex, he gives a high and low definition. So there, there is, you know, there's the entry level and then there's a level for more advanced devotees. Prabhupada said many times, many times, and I, I in fact, Nanda Leela, if you want, you can write to her and for a very reasonable fee, she will send you this information. That's a joke. So um, Prabhupada said many times that illicit sex is sex outside of marriage. And when someone said, well, Prabhupada, the people, you know, even in marriage, you're saying like, are you serious? You know, most people. And so obviously if someone is spiritually advanced, then they will restrict sex in marriage for procreation. That is an advanced stage for someone who's a mature, you know, an advanced Vaishnava. But for people in general, illicit sex as, and I can prove this because Prabhupada said it many times, means sex outside of marriage. So if we preach marital chastity, be a faithful partner. You know, take vows, be true to your husband, be true to your wife. I don't think, you know, marital fidelity is like a wildly controversial point. I think a lot of people appreciate it. And so there's vegetarianism, there's basically faithful marriage, and then there's gambling. I mean, People, I mean, we know it's an addiction. There are 12-step programs for gambling addicts. We know that people in Las Vegas sometimes defecate in the gambling halls because they can't leave the, you know, they can't leave the game or the slot machine. And we know that people, you know, destroy their families by spending all the money. So the fact that gambling can become a, a, a destructive mental disease is very well known. Everyone knows that. And then uh, what's fourth one? Oh, intoxication. To say that we don't take drugs, that's going to be like, ooh, you're weird. No, 
lot of people respect that. A lot of people respect that. And so, you know, we, we sort of tell ourselves these little bedtime stories. We don't feel bad that, oh, yeah, people aren't joining because of our four principles. It's like we tell ourselves these fairy tales. No, because first of all, we don't tell people to give things up. We tell people to try to love Krishna. And, and if someone does try to love Krishna, they will naturally start to give these things up. In 1972, when I took sannyas, my God, that was um, woo, 48 years ago. So I was actually, I took sannyas when I was one year old. I was uh, extremely precocious. I had this cute little dundas only that, no, I'm just kidding. I'm actually not, I was a joke. <laughs> the cutest little dunda. Anyway, so in 1972, when I took sannyas, I wrote a letter to Prabhupada telling him that I was going to travel and preach at the American universities. And Prabhupada wrote back to me and said, um, do not present Krishna consciousness as a bunch of rules and regulations. It's the most sublime philosophy. As I say, if you grow, then you outgrow. If you grow, you outgrow. And so uh, we're not pushing rules. We're pushing the beauty of Krishna. Devotee wrote a letter to Prabhupada because I saw the answer when it came. And he said, Prabhupada, please give us a secret weapon for our preaching. Prabhupada said, your secret weapon is Krishna's beauty. And so um, if we do everything humanly possible to preserve all of our basic principles and yet make ourselves kind of like relatable, it's not a problem. There are three things, according to my analysis, there are three things that Prabhupada absolutely did not want us to change. Because you find statements from Prabhupada like don't change anything, and you find many statements from Prabhupada change everything or adjust everything. And so what did he mean? The three things in my view that you cannot change are our philosophy, can't change our philosophy, our spiritual practice, sadhana, you can't change our spiritual practice. And number three, our institutional framework. Prabhupada wanted us to work in his movement called ISKCON. Those are the three things you can't change. Rupa Goswami makes this distinction in chapter six of the Nectar Devotion. There are basic principles you cannot change and there are details that you should adjust. Otherwise you'll be irrelevant. You know, whether you are a very large hairy mammal or a religious movement, you will go extinct uh, if you don't adapt to your environment. And so if we confuse, if we think a detail, which is variable and has to be adjusted, is a basic principle, we didn't understand the spiritual science. Or if we think that a basic principle is a detail, that's, that's also a disaster. So, my advice is, beware of free advice, but my advice is that if thank we... You. Thank you, everybody. Have a very nice night. And uh, thanks again for everything. Oh, Mary Krishna. Thank you. So just to finish the sentence, um, another satisfied customer. So if we... Obviously, we must preserve our philosophy. Can't change our philosophy. We must preserve Prabhupada's basic sadhana. 
serve Prabhupada's mission ISKCON as far as external details. If you study the actual history of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, it's a history of adaptation. It's a history of adaptation. In fact, the original adapter is Krishna himself. In the prayers of Queen Kunti, she says about Krishna that when you come to this world, you come nato natya dharo jata. You come like an actor in costume. In other words, you adjust. Lord, in the Bhagavatam, Jiva Goswami, our greatest philosopher, Prabhupada said, explains in his Tattva Sandarbha that our most important source of spiritual knowledge is the Bhagavatam. Compared to all the other Vedas, compared to our senses, compared to human reasoning, our most important source of spiritual knowledge is the Bhagavatam. And yet the Bhagavatam says that a sannyasi or Ramachari, they have two dress options, both of which are interesting. One is uh, to wear deerskin. And you know, I went to Amazon, I couldn't find any synthetic deerskin, but actually what's interesting, and what's interesting is that um, Lord Chaitanya forbade his followers to wear deerskin. It says in the Bhagavatam to wear deerskin, and yet Lord Chaitanya forbade it. So what's going on? And the other option, by the way, for sannyasis is to go naked, which, you know, I won't obviously know. So, but that's what the Bhagavatam says. So Lord Chaitanya didn't follow the Bhagavatam. Why? Because it was a detail, not a basic principle. So Lord Chaitanya himself shows the example that details are variable. They're not always required but keep the basics. If you look at Lord Chaitanya, he follows all the basic principles of the Bhagavatam and basic principles are called Siddhanta, fundamental philosophical principles. And then what did Bhakti Siddhanta do? Bhakti Siddhanta and Prabhupada, they didn't follow Lord Chaitanya in that superficial detail. Bhakti Siddhanta adopted a Muslim shirt called a Korta, that's a Muslim word, and he used the sannyas dhoti that was being used by the Ramakrishna mission. Why? It was the rage in India, you know, for sadhus. It was like the latest sadhu fashions. And so he wanted to fit in, so he used that. So you have the Bhagavatam telling you how to dress. Lord Chaitanya says, no. And then Bhakti Siddhanta and Prabhupada say, we're not going to dress like Lord Chaitanya. Prabhupada once said to me in Vrindavan, uh, it, it was the Mayapur Vrindavan Festival, it must have been around 1973, maybe 1974. And so we were in Vrindavan. I went to say goodbye to Prabhupada because I was flying back to the West. And so he just said to me, uh, Do you know that song, Bande Rupa Sanatano, the six Goswamis? And I said, Yes, because you know, I always loved that song. And Prabhupada said, The six Goswamis were the ideal Vaishnav sannyasis. If you want to understand Vaishnav sannyas, study that song. And yet in that song, it said about the six Goswamis, Kopina Kantasrito. They wore kopins and rags. But we don't, Prabhupada said, study that song, see what ideal sannyas is. And yet he would not allow us to actually follow that detail because that detail is not relevant to us today. And so if we don't distinguish between devotional details and principles, we are not going to present a spiritual science. 
let's say we need a bridge to save our lives. We have to you know, build a bridge. And there is obviously an engineering science, but let's say we don't have any engineers. And so we can't build the bridge. Now, the fact that an engineering science exists is not going to help us if we don't have an engineer. So Prabhupada gave us a spiritual science, but if we are not spiritual scientists, if we confuse basic principles with details, if we get all hung up in things which are not fundamental, and because of that, lose our ability to adjust to the historical time we're in, and we cannot really integrate, not integrate in society in the sense of adopting sinful practices, but just be accepted by society so that we can teach them then we are in real danger. We have a serious historical problem. And so that's what I've been trying to do. Uh, if you are a trained academic historian, then you know that, uh, <laughs> just kidding. then you know that um, from the, it, it's just like if you're a geologist and you look at some rocks, you see things that others don't see. So certain things move in geological time. Certain things move at, say, you know, political news cycles. Things move in different time frames. And so in terms of historical time, ISKCON is in serious trouble. And as, you know, the Romans said, don't kill the messenger. I'm not attacking ISKCON. I'm trying to alert ISKCON that there are major historical problems. Because if you... If you sort of compute the current trajectory of where ISKCON is going, Prabhupada's dream of an international, a truly international movement, Prabhupada put in his Pranam Mantra, Paschatya Deshitarni, half of Prabhupada's um, personal Pranam Mantra. Also, there's Namam Vishnu Padaya. That's like a, a very beautiful, it's a standard mantra for all gurus. And then Prabhupada wrote a personal mantra for himself in which he described how he saw himself. And if you look at that mantra, the first part is Namaste Saraswati Deve. He begins by acknowledging, I am the disciple of Bhakti Saranta Saraswati Thakur. And then, and then what about his message? Gauravani Pracharine. Prabhupada wanted to say, I'm not making this up. This is not my idea. I'm faithfully presenting the teachings of Lord Chaitanya as Krishna. So that's the first half of Prabhupada's Pranam Mantra, who I am and very basically what I'm doing. And then what do I believe I'm accomplishing? Paschatya Nirvishesha Shunyavadi Paschatya Deshatarine, half the mantra, delivering the Western countries from impersonalism and voidism. And so that's Prabhupada's Pranam Mantra. So, you know, if we can have a little common sense here and not just get all lost in, you know, rah-rah and just kind of be sober, is it really happening? Have you noticed any Western countries that are being saved lately? If you have, please tell me, because I missed it. So to me, the real way we honor Prabhupada is not just by rituals, although, you know, that's also part of it. We have to perform the puja and everything. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that, but that's not it. Just, oh, Prabhupada said, let the neophytes remain in the temples and ring the bells. That's Prabhupada speaking. 
So if you really want to honor Prabhupada, you have to make this come true. And if you study history, sociology, Shastra, you name it, the idea that we can bring a culture from something which is externally, externally a third world country, we're not talking about what ultimate values are, we're talking about how ordinary human beings perceive things. If you, if you think we can bring an external culture, not the wisdom, you know, that's spiritual science. If you bring science from India or Japan or America or anywhere, science is science. But if you try to, in, in the ethnic sense, in the ethnic sense, culturally colonize the first world, uh, do not hold your breath because you will not survive the experience. The idea that we are going to culturally colonize with external culture, not spiritual science, external culture, culturally colonize the Western world, I think is uh, a tragic misunderstanding of how the real world works. It's a tragic misunderstanding of how the real world functions. For example, if you look at the Indian community who are just incredibly successful in the West, perhaps the most successful immigrant group, you know, fabulously successful. I mean, people from Indian background were governors of two Southern states, the head of Microsoft, and, and, and not just the, you know, the most visible, millions, you know, practically hundreds of thousands at least of Indians, highly successful in so many different careers. Why? Because with their intelligence, they knew how to fit in. So ironically, ironically, we have this extraordinary example of a group of people that came from a very different part of the world with a very different culture, but were very intelligent and became very successful. And so if spiritually, you know, let's say people from a Hindu background come to our temples and we try to teach them about Krishna consciousness, I think if you want to know how to be successful in the real world and how to fit in, we have to learn from them. And so unless we do that, I, I, there is real, I mean, there's real historical danger. There's real, because right now, the senior leaders of ISKCON, the senior gurus are mostly Western. Within 10 or 20 years, that will be gone forever. And so what extent this movement is actually going to retain its position as a truly international movement. I'm saying these things because Prabhupada said them to me. I'm just repeating to you what Prabhupada told me. Prabhupada in his talks with me made it very, very clear. Somehow he trusted me and somehow he would reveal his mind to me many times, things he didn't always say publicly. And there's no question that Prabhupada, his whole mission was about making this movement successful especially in America, among, you could say, traditional Americans. His whole global strategy was based on that. And he told me that many times. And so uh, we have to find the way to get through to people. We have to find, because the only thing America is going to accept from us is a spiritual science. Science is science. If we try to impose an ethnicity, 
If we try to, you know, convince people to adopt a new ethnic tradition, it's, it's a tragic misunderstanding of how the real world works. So that's my appeal. I mean, you're all intelligent, you're all good devotees, and I'm not telling you, you know, do this, do that. I'm just saying that we need to address this historical crisis because it is a crisis. And we need to find Yes. Maharaj, I have a question. So I like your point that unless we are all working on the soul platform, uh, we cannot really sing Kumbaya and be like one, you know, one group, <laughs> like you said, you know, although we'd like to think so, because on the external platform, you really never can be one unless you kind of understand that we are all one on the soul platform. I, I like that point very much that you made. But um, you mentioned the two governors, you know, they converted to Christianity. And that is one of the reasons they became so successful. And that's not very exactly very our, our, our uh, goal. No, very true. That's very true. That's a good point. But I will respond by saying that if nothing else, it shows that there was not, at least in their states, there was not a racial impediment. And obviously, we're not going to convert to Christianity. I mean, for but that's true because the, the Christians almost feel like, oh, we got these people on our side, so to speak, and they're almost even, you know, appreciated and accepted even more. So, okay, you know, okay, but okay, so but those are because, good and these are Christian Christian uh, states, so to speak. They're like kind true. of however, okay. What I would argue here, I, I like this. Is good, these are good points. This is fun now. Now we're doing a little tennis here. So my argument would be, <laughs> my argument would be, wong, wong, you know, so my argument would be that. Um, the principle I enunciated still holds. Because let's say you take a place like South Carolina, which by the way, when the devotees at Padayatra many years ago in America, they said the nicest people were in South Carolina, which you know you didn't see that one coming. And so in terms of, and, and the Padayatris were, you know, they're wearing the Indian clothes and everything. And some people were really nice. But the general sociological principle I stated, or so, which I, I'll put it now in more general terms, or socio-psychological principle is that the more you make people comfortable, the more you make people comfortable on the surface, let's say, because people are extremely superficial nowadays. So the more you make people comfortable on that level, the more you can deal with them, the more chance you have of persuading them of something. Now, if you want to be elected, obviously you need over 50% of the vote. So I would say if you look at proportions, ratios here, we're not talking about, let's say, in the near future, getting over 50% of the people in South Carolina to become Hare Krishna devotees. However, as Prabhupada said, even if we get 5%, if we get 3%, if we got 1%, if we got 1% of the people in this country to um, become sort of like out of the closet, active Hare Krishnas, we're talking about 3.3 million people. Uh, uh, no, 1%, yeah, yeah, 3.3 million people. So, I mean, that's a lot. If we got 2%, that's, you know, almost 7 million people. Oh my God, you could never, 
you could never go to a shopping center without getting literally like harassed by Sankerton But anyway, so but 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 the point here is that so so the the ratios here or, or the math here is that you know what are you trying to convince people of what what's your target audience now in America there are hundreds of millions of people who are not fanatical Christians huge numbers of them that's what all the statistics show even the Southern Baptist Convention is rapidly losing membership there's a there's a major generational divide even among Southern Baptists because the parents are like you know kill the gays and you know, the role of women and, and, and all this stuff, whereas their children look at it differently and they're losing, they're not retaining their own children and they're losing membership. So this country is opening wider and wider. And the more we fit in, I mean, obviously things like who do we worship, we worship Krishna. We can't compromise on that. And, and so if you just look at the list of things that we cannot compromise on, Absolutely, you know, we're going to chant Hare Krishna, we're going to teach certain things. And so, therefore, we don't have any weirdness capital, extra weirdness capital to spend. What I mean is, it, it's like, it's what I call the weirdness quota. You know, if you meet somebody and you like them in certain ways, but in some ways are a little weird, then you may tolerate it or, okay, maybe, you know, okay, maybe we can be friends, but people cross a line where it's too much weirdness and uh, no, you can't have my phone number. No, you can't have my, you know, my email address. No, I don't really think I want to see you again. So it's like they've used up their weirdness quota. So what I'm saying is certain things, the things we absolutely cannot change that we worship Krishna and that, you know, in the list of other things, that's already a lot for people to swallow. We haven't got like, okay, you know, we just explained our philosophy and principles. We still got a lot more weirdness to go. So we can also dress in very exotic ways and we can do other exotic things. But no, I'm saying we should do everything humanly possible to fit in. And of course we can't change our basics. We, that we can't change. And so if we do that, I think there's a direct proportion that the more we fit in, the more we'll get people. We're not going to be elected governor anytime soon, but we will make a lot more devotees. And that's already happening. For example, uh, we have very uh, Krishna West, boos or cheer. You can, I guess we get people the freedom to boo or cheer. But anyway, we have centers in Latin America, down in Argentina and in uh, Brazil and in Chile, which you tend to find the more European parts of Latin. Anyway, we're making lots of devotees and they're all professional, they're educated. And, and I don't mean this in any disparaging way, but a lot more devotees than, than most of the conventional temples now. So it's not, we haven't been elected governor, you know, of any states in these countries, but because we are much more relatable, we're attracting a lot of people all from educated professional classes. And the same is going elsewhere. If you look at America, for example, at the movements that are really attracting people like the Mantra House in Los Angeles or, or, or other things, they, they're, they're programs that tend to make Western people more comfortable, at least in superficial external things. So yeah, I mean, you made a good point, but I think still the basic principle holds.
But the more the more people are can can feel comfortable, the more they can identify with us, the easier it is to you know give them the medicine. But can't you kind of have best of both worlds? Um, can't you find what? Uh, the best of both worlds, like like for am I sounding bad? Is it me? No, you're on key. Okay. Um, in your professional life, you could, you know, like Tulsi Gabbard is a good example. I mean, she's a, you know, congressional representative, you know, and <laughs> she she wears Western clothes wherever she's going. But I think she still follows the traditional attire also. Yeah. So yeah. you can have like a, a balance of both, you know, so to speak. Although I think I would say this. First of all, I completely respect everyone's right to practice Krishna consciousness in the way they want. If someone you know, feels more comfortable, let's say with Indian external culture, that's their right. You know, We don't fight with people over that. I'm simply saying though, that um, it's not just a question of, it's not a bridge. It's, it's not a bridge. It's, it's like what that ends up being what the politicians call the bridge to nowhere. What I'm saying is that if we want to attract and retain a significant number of educated Western people, the kind of people who can really do something for this movement. Mm -hmm. Our message is you can become interested, you can participate, you can join the Hare Krishna movement, you can advance and go back to Godhead, and you never at no point do you have to change your ethnic orientation because there is nothing intrinsically spiritual about these external things. Here's the direct I, think, I think I know where you're going now. You're talking like the Catholic Church, you know, they, they accept any ethnic ethnicity anywhere as long as they're following their Catholicism principles. I think that's the point yeah. you're trying to make, kind of. But yeah, because why should we care? There's no scriptural evidence. There's no historical. It, it's what I call, I mean, it kind of intentionally used sort of pro provocative language here, so brace yourself. But it's what I call the myth of Vedic culture. And the reason I use that language is, and you have to explain what I mean by that, is because if you take, there are many words in, in, in let's say, in Sanskrit that you can directly translate to English. One word is prakriti, which means nature. That's a direct, perfect translation. Whether it means a person's nature or birds and bees. So prakriti means nature. Ishwara or Isha means Lord. Deva means God. These are direct translations. However, there is no Sanskrit which literally means Vedic culture. There is no Sanskrit in Shastra which directly translates to Vedic culture. So we, we say, I mean, you know, we all say Vedic culture at least like 108 times a day. But the point is, it's not in Shastra. Now, what, what, the, what is in Shastra is a Vedic civilization. For example, Varnashram. You find Varnashram everywhere in the Vedas. It's in the Rig Veda. It's everywhere. Varnashram is everywhere in the Vedas. Krishna Bhakti, as the perfection of the Vedic civilization, is in Shastra. So if you talk about basic Varnashram, which culminates in Krishna Bhakti, that's absolutely in Shastra. But if by culture, like, for example, let's say I say Gujarati culture, that means 
a traditional way of dress, folk festivals, cuisine, architecture. If I say, for example, Oaxacan culture in Mexico or something. So when you use that word a lot of times, it means an ethnic tradition. So in that sense, there's no evidence in the Vedas. There's no evidence that the Acharyas are trying to teach us an ethnic tradition or that there are intrinsically spiritual ethnic traditions. Yeah, at that point I get, yeah. Yeah. There's no evidence, that, and yet I would say that is one of the most fundamental beliefs of many devotees. That when they go out in the street and they're wearing Indian clothes, but it's not even Indian clothes anymore, it's sort of like archaic Indian clothes. But when they go out on the street dressed like that, that um, somehow they are presenting a master ethnicity, an intrinsically spiritual way of dressing intrinsically spiritual recipes and things like that. And there's just no evidence for that. There's just no, there's no scriptural evidence that, and there's no historical evidence. If you look at India, you know, what today we call India was like Europe. It was many different countries, Maharashtra, you know, uh, Bengal, these, these are all countries. And even, you know, sometimes they were more than one country. They have their own languages. They have their own alphabets. They have their own cuisines. They have their own dress styles and they weren't all the same. So the idea of a monolithic, absolute ethnic tradition, which we are preserving is I believe mythological. And Prabhupada himself says this. I mean, Prabhupada, here's a direct quote from Prabhupada. We do not care about dress. Dress is a dead thing. We are interested in living consciousness. So I think taking on, for the Hare Krishna movement to take on the task of imposing a new ethnic tradition in the Western world is a tragic mistake and makes it- Arash, uh, uh, My name is Malati Priya, but I understand that uh, you can tell about common devotees wearing uh, Western clothes in Western countries. That makes sense. But the- uh, in churches or you you see pope john paul he wears this frock you know he's he doesn't wear jeans or shorts so he's <laughs> not judged. so okay. and indians don't judge you know indians so many people they follow christianity so they're not saying why is pope john paul not wearing a dhoti you know he's wearing oh, a frock oh. and they still accept him oh do you so, have a, do you have a camera I the higher hubs have to change their dress code yeah. you know okay i can't uh, can you do you have a camera i can't see you all right let me show you um, Yes. I like your, I like your spirit. So anyway, so I'm going to jump on that question or that statement first. Okay. Here's, I have several things to say, but thank you. Thank you for (laughs) speaking out on that point. Um, First of all, if you look at Catholic customs, it is true that at their holy service, the priest and often only the priest, wears special clothes. The people in the congregation don't wear special clothes. So let's say, so the analogy, the actual analogy here would be, if in a Hare Krishna temple, the pujari on the altar doing the puja wears some special priestly garment. That would be the analogy. And, Secondly, 
the priestly clothes that the Catholics do use have no historical base. I mean, it's not coming from Jesus and it's not coming from the early church. It, it comes centuries, many centuries after Jesus. So there, there's no possible claim that this is somehow connecting us to an intrinsically spiritual culture that Jesus brought, which of course is absurd. So, uh, uh, but, uh, excuse me for this, but say, let's say if Prabhupada shows up at your door tomorrow, would you be comfortable wearing shorts and t-shirts in front of him and pay away? Oh, thank you. Thank you for, thank you for, yeah, thank you for reminding me of the other fallacy you stated. Thank you. I, uh, no, I really, I'm really enjoying this. Thank you for, uh, I really, I really, thank you for bringing these points up. I'm, I'm really having a good time. So what devotees always do, and I, you know, and I mean literally always, is that when I make these points, they compare uh, bananas with uh, electric tractors or something in the sense that let's compare mangoes with mangoes, or <laughs> Indian example, in, in this sense. When, let's say people wear robes, and by the way, Prabhupada, I have a quote from Prabhupada. I'll send you my paper. Prabhupada says, if I can preach better with Western clothes, I will put on Western clothes. That's a quote from Prabhupada. But if you look at, let's say, the sannyas court and dhoti and cape, which became popular within the last hundred years among Gaudiya Vaishnava, um, it's chaste. You know, it doesn't unnecessarily expose the body. So if you want to make a real comparison, you don't take something appropriate and dignified from India and compare it with something inappropriate and undignified from the West. I learned as a child, not from Prabhupada, from my mother. I was fortunate, I had very good parents. I learned from my mother and father that when you go to a house of God, which is a term used in the Vedas, Deva Griha, when you go to a house of God, you show respect. Now, clearly, wearing shorts or blue jeans is so informal that forget our specific tradition, just on general cultural grounds, it's disrespectful. So what we really have to compare here is wearing respectful Indian clothes or respectful Western clothes. That's the comparison. Not you know, you got to compare the same category. And when you do that, here's the, here's the Prabhupada story. A real story, it's in one of Satsarupa's little biographies of Prabhupada, that when um, Prabhupada saw a picture of Balavanta, my friend Balavanta, who was running for mayor of Atlanta back then, and um, because of Prabhupada's and God We Trust political party, and he saw a picture of Balavanta with a sport coat and a tie, but he had a bead bag and neck beads. Prabhupada said, this is what I always wanted. That you become known as American Vaishnavas. Prabhupada was asked, this is in Veda base. This is not me. This is not, you know, it's not like I had a dream last night and Prabhupada said it to me. In Veda base, Prabhupada was asked by a devotee, why do we dress this way? You know, Indian clothes. Prabhupada said, because you wanted to. I never said you had to do it. You wanted to do it. Prabhupada personally said to me, 
you know, I can take a lie detector test. Prabhupada personally said to me in Honolulu, you don't have to wear Indian clothes, just be a gentleman. Prabhupada often said, my fear was that you would be confused with hippies. I don't want people to think you're hippies. Because, and to understand a lot of what Prabhupada said, Prabhupada, here's another quote from Prabhupada. I can send you my papers. Here's another direct quote from Prabhupada. There is no rule against long hair or beards, but I did not want it because I didn't want the public to think you were hippies. Now, why that concern? To understand this fear Prabhupada had, because from our point of view, as young preachers, we actually wanted the hippies to identify with us because that's where we made a lot of devotees. So when we would go to festivals or political events, we wanted the young people to identify with us. Prabhupada had a mortal fear that the public would think we were hippies. Why? To understand that, you have to understand the history, which these things are not discussed very much, but somehow, anyway. Prabhupada, by the way, Prabhupada's first instruction to me was to get a really good education so I could present Krishna consciousness in a rational way to educated people. If you look at Prabhupada before he came to America, but when Prabhupada is preparing to come to the West, if you look at Prabhupada when he's in America before ISKCON, what is he doing? He's writing letters to the most respectable people, to great foundations, the Carnegie Foundation, the Ford Foundation. Even in India, he's writing letters to world leaders. ISKCON, as it emerged, was plan B. It was not plan A. And you have to understand that to understand Prabhupada. I mean, of course, he was very happy. He loved us and he was, you know, he dedicated himself, gave his life for us. But it was plan B. Plan A, Prabhupada was operating under the principle of yajadacharati sheshtas. Whatever the great people do, the common people will follow. And I think Prabhupada didn't realize, and he used to say these things. He didn't claim he was materially omniscient. Prabhupada didn't realize before he came to America how democratic America was. Because in India, in the India that you have to understand, Prabhupada grew up in a, uh, an empire. Prabhupada was an imperial British citizen. Prabhupada did not live in a real democracy until he was like in his 50s. Prabhupada was in his 50s before he lived in a democracy. And so Prabhupada's whole culture, his whole understanding of the world was yajadacharti shesas, whatever the great people do, whatever the king or queen does, whatever the leading people do. And that was Prabhupada's vision of how to spread his guru's, uh, his guru's movement. You appeal to the leaders, the shreshtas. But what he found is, you know, to quote that old Beatles song, no reply. You know, there was just, um, there was no reply. No one was interested. And then in the meantime, some young people started coming and Prabhupada realized, okay, this is the plan. He had an idea, didn't work, but this is working. But my point is regarding dress and all this stuff and saris, is that Prabhupada obviously never gave up his first hope. Prabhupada never gave up the hope that we could someday attract the leading people. And that's why he always told us, he wrote to me personally. I mean, he was always telling, saying this. 
that we have to attract the educated class. We should go to the universities. We should attract the leading people. Prabhupada never gave up his original vision. And that's why he was very concerned at a certain point. The movement was growing, you know, the Hare Krishna explosion. But I, I've seen this, Prabhupada said it, you know, this is not my opinion, where Prabhupada was concerned because he said many people are joining this movement, but a lot of them are not Brahmins, they're Shudras. And it was at the time of the Hare Krishna explosion when a lot of Shudras were joining. I mean, nice people and devotees and they're saintly persons, but vocationally Shudras, Prabhupada started emphasizing Varnashram. Why did Prabhupada start emphasizing Varnashram? He didn't want the Shudras to take over the movement or even the Vaishas. And so Prabhupada knew that to really push the Varna system was the best defense against passionate people sort of becoming the leaders of ISKCON and taking over ISKCON. He wanted to reconstitute a Brahmin society. So unless you know all these things that are going on behind the scenes, you don't really understand what's going on. But Prabhupada, to say, I mean, these are quotes from Prabhupada. You don't have to wear Indian clothes. We don't care about dress. Dress is a dead thing. If I can spread the movement better with a different dress, I'll do it. It, As it so turns out, when Prabhupada came in, in, in 1965, Krishna himself opened for Prabhupada this amazing, unique historical window where suddenly uh, Indian mysticism was all the rage. The Beatles went to Rishikesh. And Jimi Hendrix put the, you know, the Vishwarupa on an album. All these cultural icons, everyone had to have a guru. I used to go and sell books in 72 when I took sannyas. We used to sell books at universities. And I remember on the activities board where, they, you know, people put up flyers. I mean, half the activities were this guru or that guru. It was a huge, huge fad. And even people who just had, you know, really no spiritual acumen at all, like this Guru Maharaji, he filled the Astrodome. Every Indian guru that had a little bit of moxie or charisma was getting thousands of followers. And so at that time... Maharaj, can I interrupt with one question? Last point. So, let, me, let, me, let me just round out. The, sure. then, yeah. So Prabhupada, you know, having an, an elderly, saintly guru like Prabhupada, who obviously was spiritual, Prabhupada radiated spirituality. I mean, it's, you know, it, was, it was palpable. And so, and so having an elderly Indian guru like that was, I mean, there was no better strategy to attract followers at that time among young people. Times are radically different now. Prabhupada was a pragmatist. So anyway, uh, Malati Priya, that's your name? Thank you so much, Maharaj. No, I, really your no I, I really appreciate your spirit. Thank you for bringing this point. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Uh, Gita so, Gita yeah. yeah. So my question is, uh, and you might have already answered perhaps because they were young people. Um, you said, why did Srila Prabhupada ask his disciples to wear dhotis and saris at all if dress was not a... Uh, uh, you know, okay. Uh, okay, first of all, okay, two points I'll make. Number one, this is a quote from Prabhupada. You wanted to do it. 
I never said you had to do it. That's a quote from Prabhupada. Secondly, um, Prabhupada was afraid that you know people would go back to hippie dress. And uh, and it was and third, it was working. Because in those days there was this, you know, freakiness was all the fashion. So to be weird and freaky meant that you, you know, you were mainstream among young people. Right? And Piari knows that. I mean, you know, he he was, I'm, I'm sure you, in your own way, you were freaky. And so, and so, and so therefore we were actually, ironically, by being weird and different, we were kind of fitting in. I remember we would go on Hari Nam. I remember this very well in San Francisco, 1969 and 70. And the, the younger people were kind of interested and the older, anyone over 30 thought we were disgusting, thought you're, you're ruining the country. And it was really like that. It, there was this complete separation. And that's why ISKCON, for all the Hare Krishna explosion, we probably attracted like about three mature adults. You know, I mean, we just, you remember Piari? It was just, you know, it was Vedic Lord of the Lord of the Flies. It was just, you know, the temples were just all these young people. We didn't attract mature people. We didn't attract adults. I mean, people who were actually mature. We didn't attract people that had jobs, people that had education, people that, and, and that was one of the problems of the movement is that we did, we, we, we were totally unable to attract a, a mature group of people. And therefore there were many excesses in terms of, you know, sort of radical sankirtan techniques and, and just all kinds of things happened because it was just basically a young person's movement. 